Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tour.com. Joining me today is writer Genevieve Valentine, whose last book was The Fantastic Icon. She's also written for Catwoman and Xena and has uh, fantastic blogs about red carpet fashion for things like the Emmys and the Oscars. Genevieve, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, and I'm uh, I'm I'm I have to say the only thing, and I think I mentioned this earlier that I read about the Emmys this year was your article about fashion. Is red carpet fashion science fiction? What an excellent question! There is definitely an element of creating a fantasy object. I think when you are going on the red carpet past a certain level, there is a certain level to which, and you see this a lot in sort of background cast people or the supporting cast that shows up because the entire show has been nominated everyone looks very good very polished you know they look like this is a professional event and they have dressed up and everything is fine you hit a certain level where you realize that people are trying to create a fantasy version of themselves in order to impress casting people going forward in order to sort of become their own PR machine for a bigger campaign uh, and the closer someone gets to that, I think the closer more people, the, the more people end up getting involved in the image creation process. So the closer you get to being sort of a walking collaboration. The Oscars, I think, is sort of the pinnacle of this, but we're seeing it more and more in TV as TV sort of becomes a prestige medium. I think my, my biggest surprise this year on the red carpet was Sarah Paulson, who has somehow leveled up to the point where she showed up in what is essentially a Kate Blanchett dress. Um, which is a bold move, and she looked amazing, and she picked up an Emmy, as everybody knew that she was going to. But at this point, you can basically use the red carpet to sort of communicate messages like birds, I guess. So yes, never mind. It is science fiction. I just talked myself into it. I don't think there was much to talk yourself into. I think you already knew that, when because when I read your articles about fashion... I mean, it's very clear that your brain's working in that direction. To me, it is, or I've talked myself into that. Um, either way, what's up with the birds, though? <laughs> well, you have specific patterns, patterns of plumage, patterns of action, and birds use them to sort of stake out territory. They use them to communicate. They use them to, for example, court an up-and-coming film actor who's hoping to become James Bond to go to your house in Rhode Island and pose for some very candid pictures. Like, all of that is very carefully choreographed. And you're not cynical at all, right? Did you read Icon? (laughs) (laughs) I did, and I reviewed it, as you know. Uh, But no, I find that hilarious. I find that really, I mean, I, I, and I've had this conversation with you before where, you know, we've talked about Taylor and Tom, which we're going to, because, I mean, they're completely uh, science fiction and fantasy, rather. That's the word. They're fantasy, that relationship was. But uh, I, I did suggest to you once that, hey, maybe they, maybe they do get along, and, and, and I think you shot me down pretty fast. <sighs> There's don't so don't many sigh. Tell me about it. No, no. <laughs> Tell I'm me thinking about over. I'm, I'm thinking it over. I, it is entirely possible that they got along enough that when they were talking to each other at the Met Gala, their PR people were like, do we think this could work? And both of them said, yeah, you know, this is fine. I liked him. I liked her. Like, yeah, that's great. But at some point, it just becomes such a ham-handed PR move that it, it is actually impossible to believe that there is human emotion involved. Right. Which for me, frankly, is when it gets interesting. 
Um, but that's because I'm terrible. Not terrible at it, all, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little terrible. It's okay. But that particular relationship was so carefully designed to be in public. And he was so carefully chosen to be someone who could pretend an earnestness that everyone knew was probably not real, but they were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because he is so generally charming and earnest. So it was an excellent choice on her part. Um, I think that now that Daniel Craig has been signed as Bond for the next few movies, he must have gotten something else out of it that we don't know yet. And that is the biggest mystery of this relationship to me. <laughs> so we wait to see what Tom Hiddleston signs up to next or what the next big thing in his career is. You think that's what it was leading up to? I mean, I hope so. If well, it was Bond, it did not work. It didn't work. But what about her? Because, you know, I'm more interested in her. I've always been more interested in her. I think she's fascinating. But because she really is some other level of fantasy for me in terms of the whole, like, very, you know, the the American dream kind of fantasy in lots of ways. But But... Where do you think this was leading for her? Like, was she just, was this like a help him out and we'll see later how we can help you out? I mean, she doesn't need the publicity. We've we've talked about that before. She didn't need the publicity. She was coming off of a breakup and must have known that some headlines were coming and was trying to get out ahead of them by doing something else. It does seem like a weirder move on her part, though. Yeah. Unless maybe she is giving the middle finger to all of her critics who say that she's dated too many people and is determined to always be dating someone just to give them the finger forever, which would be the coolest thing she's ever done. What, by dating another guy just randomly? By Yes, by leaning into the idea that she dates too many uh, guys, but so she is never single again. So, so she's just playing out blank space is what she's doing. I mean, that's the best PR right there, right? Yeah, like, you are true. constantly looking at whoever she's stepping out with, like, I wonder which of her songs is going to be about him. I'd better buy that album. I'd better buy that album five times. I'm pretty excited about the next bunch of music she does now. Now we're going to have to read, you know, Tom Hiddleston and do most of it. What? Oh, God. No? You don't? <laughs> I'm, trying to imagine, thing to I'm trying to imagine what kind of songs you can write about a very carefully structured two-month relationship. Very interesting ones, Genevieve. Very interesting <laughs> ones. <laughs> because which leads me to the very interesting book that you wrote about uh, constructed relationships. I mean, Icon. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> following up, of course. No, following up, of course, from Persona, um, and following up fairly cleanly from Persona. So it was a, it was a sort of a, a steady narrative from the first one. It was. Uh... Which is one of those things where people ask, was that a choice? And for me, there was never a choice. Those were the two characters that we were following throughout. Uh, I knew where they would end up at the end of the first book. The thing that I did want to explore more, and I was very excited to get to talk about, was the constructed relationship uh, for exactly these reasons. Even when you know that a relationship is constructed and that you are looking at candid photos that have clearly been taken by a professional photographer who was invited out to someone's private estate to take these photos. Right, you you want to sit down and say, but they probably get along, right? Like, even if everything about it has is patently false, there is a part of us that wants to construct a narrative in which the people who are pretending to be in love actually do fall in love. That's why we have 8 million romantic comedies where people have to pretend to be married so that they can stay overnight in the fancy Irish inn in the countryside, whatever. We want to believe that if you can, if you pretend enough, something becomes true. That is 
magical thinking. It is a it is a transformative utterance, and putting that in sort of a political sphere that is built almost entirely on the falseness of celebrity culture, you end up basically with a bunch of people who would like to have more influence than they have trying to change the world the only way they know how, which is lying as hard as they possibly can and hoping that it does somebody some good, which is just how I like to date, obviously. Yeah. Well, I was going to say something absolutely terrible, so I'm going to say it anyway, or you would just keep pretending hard enough till you kind of convince yourself that that's how it is. Well, and I think that there are a couple of characters in Icon who sort of have done that. I think Grace in particular has sort of accepted that, you know, I'm doing this for my country. These are sacrifices that I make. Everything is mostly fine, so I can continue like this indefinitely. Yeah. And one of the things that she runs into in the book is that Sianna shows up and she's like, it's not going to be okay and I'm not going to let it be okay for you, which in some ways is sort of a terrible thing to do to someone else, which is why the second half of the book is a weird battle of wills where everyone sits around a table and has to decide if they're going to commit to actually doing the thing that they've been pretending to do. Yeah. Well, that's why things get complicated and you get a little bit of a spy versus spy kind of action uh, going on as well. Was that hard to keep track of, uh, keep, you know, everyone's... Well, because I'm talking about these people as if they're all real, but of course they were real in your head in the book while you were writing it. So was it hard to kind of keep track of what each of these characters was feeling and pretending to feel? Or pretending to feel. Did you make a lot of notes, is what I'm trying to say. I made a lot of timeline notes. I am not one of those authors who has a good sense of physical time passing, which I didn't realize until I got to this book because it had never been particularly important to the plot that it was a Tuesday night. This is my first book where if it was a Tuesday night, I had people in five different countries and these were the time zones and this is how long it would take to travel and like I had to sit down and map out all the logistics. The emotional stuff, I think, I I sort of feel like we are all used to the weaponized teenage girl. Uh, We don't see her as much as I think that we should in art, but it does not take a whole lot to create, especially especially if you are putting external pressures on her, it does not take a whole lot to create sort of a young woman who will do what she's supposed to do and say what she's supposed to say and has an internal life that would surprise everyone around her if they had any clue. And I think that the reason that I wanted to linger on that as much as I wanted to linger on the sort of creepy aspects of celebrity culture is because I think that there is sort of a deep, creepy, amazing quality to all of the the hidden selves that young women tend to have. And in this particular circumstance, putting them all in a room together would mean that all of them were fighting not only personal grudges against one another, political grudges against one another for their own country's best interests, and for some version of themselves that they would have an easier time living with. And for some reason, that part of it was never the part that I had to think about. Um, I think when you put all those characters in that room, any one of them could have put their hand out. I'm trying to do this without spoilers. It's very hard. Right, right. When you get them all together in a room and things start to happen, any one of them could have put their hand out. But it also makes sense that things would fall out in a way where some of them would choose to take a slightly different tack 
for personal reasons. It's so hard to do this without spoilers. Yeah, that's fine. I'm just keeping quiet. <laughs> but I was going to, I was going to interject and say, you know, a bunch of weaponized young women. Uh, basically, you're talking about Taylor Swift's bad blood video. I hate to bring it all back to Taylor Swift. <laughs> I do love that album, but you know. It was a fantastic video, uh, but that's what it is. But mo- moving on from that just a little bit, again, without giving away too much information, without too many spoilers, I'm just going to say this. Killing off characters, do you enjoy it? Oh. And it gets into sort of that weird space where you don't want to be one of those writers that's like, my characters tell me where to go, because as a writer, you are in fact making all the decisions, and this is a craft, and it's something that you work on. But at the same time, I think there comes a point when you realize that by virtue of things that have happened and by virtue of personality traits that have been evidenced, someone is likely not going to make it out of a situation for which they were not sufficiently prepared. And I always get sort of a tight stomach for a second when I think about it in the same way that I would get a tight stomach if I realized that I myself was unprepared for something that had just gone horribly wrong. And I was like, um, this is going to go really badly for me. So when I do get to the point that I realize it's going to go very badly for someone else. I always feel a moment of like, that sucks, buddy. But then you move on. Right. And I'm not sure that I take a particular joy in sitting down and being like, this is it for you. Like, I can't wait. You can't see me, but I'm rubbing my hands together like a villain in a comic book. (laughs) But there definitely is a moment where you look at it and you're like, they're not making it out. That's too bad. That's too bad, pal. You did your best. And then I guess it's mostly about making sure that leading up to that it does not feel like you put it in just to get a body count which I think is the tricky thing um whenever I read a character's death that has affected me it's always been something where I knew it was coming not necessarily that I could see the plot twist coming where it would happen and anything like that but just that sense throughout where you're like "Ah, you know mm." That you know the the <laughs> the scythe of death has been hanging over this character for a hundred pages. It does not surprise me that this has happened, and that's sort of the thing that I struggle with because death in the real world often happens, and you're like, wait, what? Like what the? So sort of the idea that you have to justify it in fiction in a way that the real world does not make any attempts to justify it is the weird part, uh, and that probably, I guess, is the part that is most satisfying for me because I get to control it in a way that you do not get to control the real world. So speaking of comic book heroes and and rubbing your hands together like the villain in a comic book hero, (laughs) who were the comic book heroes, because you've written for Catwoman, you've written for Xena, who were the the villains, rather, that you enjoyed, whom you enjoyed writing the most? Well, the thing about both Catwoman and Xena is that they were introduced as villains, and the shift to protagonist didn't necessarily mean that they left all those tendencies behind, which is why I love writing for both of them so much. It's, uh, it's that idea where they know that what some of, they, some of the things that they have done are wrong, could be wrong, could backfire in a way that they recognize, and they still choose to do it because they feel like it's what needs to be done. And Catwoman has a reputation as a thief, and that has been sort of the fun aspect of her personality for a long time. She's like a one-woman heist movie. But more and more, I think, that's the reasoning behind making her sort of a player in the Gotham moral battlefield as much as the action battlefield. 
which was one of the things that I loved writing for her, was the fact that when I stepped in, she had become a very reluctant mob boss. And the idea that someone who was so anti-authoritarian and so independent would have put herself in this position, and the answer is, why would she and what kind of toll would that take on her? Xena, you have the advantage of the fact that that is some goofy nonsense and everyone loves it. But when we meet her at the very beginning of the series, she is actually giving up her armor in a way that looks very ritualistic. And there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not she was actually like planning to kill herself before Gabrielle crossed her path and changed everything, which is deep stuff for the pilot of a TV show. Uh, especially a TV show where when everyone, like anytime someone turned their head quickly, you heard like a <laughs> sound effect. Right. So which it is was what we loved about it. <laughs> I love the campiness of it. I did. It, I mean, the camp is amazing, but the amazing thing is that underneath that camp, you have a character right. who has done so many terrible things, and basically this six-year journey for her is about atoning for some of the terrible things that she did. Um, and Gabrielle alongside her sort of opening up to a wider worldview and having to temper some of her optimism, but not trying to lose it all because if you lose hope, then there's no point. Which, again, gives you like a gigantic playground of emotional beats that you can use. And my arc starts at the sort of beginning of the sixth season in which Xena and Gabrielle go through a 25-year enchanted sleep, just for reasons, wake up, find out that Xena's baby daughter is now the biggest general in the Roman Empire, which is now being run by the 15-year-old that they had met briefly before they went into the Enchanted Sleep. And the first thing Xena does is kill half the Greek pantheon, just because. They're threatening her daughter, she kills half the Greek pantheon. Uh, hey, listen, you don't cross a mother who's, you know, <laughs> protecting her kid, come on. After that, they the show takes a jump to sort of the Norse gods for a while, which I understand. They blew up a lot of stuff. She sort of met briefly with Augustus Caesar in Rome, got her daughter out of there, killed half the Greek pantheon, put her daughter in a safe place. And then they took a break and sort of went up north and visited the Norse gods for a while because they had basically exploded the continuity that they had left behind them. Uh, but when I was watching the show the first, the first go-around a million years ago when I was still a young person, I was like, what an amazing setting for all of that because you have... The I was going to say the very politically accurate, but there's not one thing about Xena that was particularly politically accurate. Uh, you have the rise of Augustus Caesar, which, you know, it's very real world. It is very much about the way that power corrupts you. It is very much about the way that you have good intentions and authority and how those things can go wrong. And then on the other side, you have the extremely mythic idea that the gods are dead. What happens in a world where the gods are dead? If you have no one that you can turn to and everyone is as powerless as you are, what then? So I made sure that I had at least one gigantic nonsense fight move in every issue of Xena. But I also got really excited by the fact that at this point in the series, all of that has just happened. Gabrielle is concerned with her legacy as a bard. Xena is sort of realizing that she has influenced a world that has come before her, but after 25 years out of it, there is a world that she had nothing to do with and she is trying to help people in a world where she did not have any sort of immediate ability to fix things. So when she shows up 25 years later, Augustus Caesar is in place and all of his armies and all of his colonizing forces 
have been walking around unchecked for years because she wasn't there and she couldn't do anything. And so I, so I really like the idea of sort of trying to step into a system and, and dismantle it from the inside and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, plus, there's a casino heist because you kind of owe it to Xena to put her in a casino at least once. A giant Roman casino for no reason. I loved it. It was great. It was super fun. All right, so now the big question. I mean, we've talked about, you know, your actual work. But you know what the really big question is? <laughs> it's Brangelina. I mean, on the one hand, you know, a couple of straight white people broke up with each other and they moved on. It's fine. No big deal. On the other hand, they're the emblem of Hollywood for, like, generations, for a couple of generations, in fact. For my generation, for sure. They're this glam Hollywood couple. They did all the good deeds. They made lots of money. They gave lots of it away. They adopted kids from all over the place. I mean, they were Halloween costumes, you know? Okay, so here's the thing. I mean, it, we talk about um, constructed, celeb constructed celebrity relationships and how a lot of it is fantasy. Brangelina, essentially, are real-life fantasy or were. And now this whole breakup, part of me just feels, you know, kind of sad because, well, anyone who's been together for so long and has lots of kids, of course, it affects them when you're in the public eye, it makes it harder, etc., etc. On the other hand, it also makes me wonder, um, you know, what's up with that? If they can't make it work, <laughs> how can anyone else know, really? How do you feel about that? I mean, did you think that was the real thing all these years? I might be the only person who has sort of milk toast feelings about Brangelina. Like, they were fine. They seemed decent. Angelina Jolie seems more committed than most celebrities to being more than just a mouthpiece of doing things differently. So they were fine, and, and that was great. The only rumor I have heard that interests me is that one of the reasons they broke up is because she is trying to enter politics in the UK, which is just random enough and just sort of in character really? enough, if we're talking about them as fictional people. Right that it would make sense as a reason to break from him because she would have to sort of leave Hollywood behind in order to do that. And I can see that being something that he is not interested in and did not sign up for in an organic enough way that it would make sense that they would split but still be amicable. Hopefully in the next few weeks we will see the nature of what this divorce is going to be and my only hope is that they don't do anything that's going to embarrass their kids. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's so dumb because there are so many celebrity kids where their parents have gone through awful, terrible divorces and their parents are headlines doing terrible things. Alec Baldwin, like, screaming at his own daughter on the street, like, that's mortifying. Um, but part of the constructed fantasy of Brangelina is that they have sort of the ideal hippie family where everyone is free to be themselves and they've always protected their, their children from too much paparazzi stuff and... They've definitely projected a fantasy of, like, this is how you do it where no one gets hurt. And I just want to see if that can sustain itself through the divorce. So what's next for you? Is there more in the world of Persona and Icon? Uh, right now I'm in a position of never say never, but I also feel like if I stopped here, it would be a good enough stopping point. Once again, we're running into the thing where there are no spoilers. The hardest thing that I realized with Icon is that it was impossible for anyone to review Icon without directly spoiling Persona. Oh, thanks so much so, for that. Yeah, sorry about yeah. that. I retroactively apologize to everyone who had to review it. Thank you for reviewing. Sorry about the gigantic spoilers that you could not avoid. Um... In terms of what's next, I recently did a bunch of research for an article on witchcraft, food, and the history of the diet, which got me 
incredibly interested in sort of the recognized rise of anorexia in the 1870s among the Victorian middle and upper classes, where appetite was incredibly regulated by ideas of proper manners and, you know, obviously a well-bred lady doesn't have a large appetite and all of that kind of thing. Never eat in public, Um, yeah. So I am... I, wow, 10,000 words, let's say? That's I'm about 10,000 words into, into something about like the, the dark magic of food and appetites and witches. And I don't know, right now it's just like gloopy and poisonous and someone swallows an entire walnut full of worms. And, and it's, it's at the very sort of nebulous point where I know it's going to be something. But for me, the writing process, especially on longer pieces, is always walking into a very dark house and then trying to light up rooms as you go so that eventually you understand the shape of the house that you are currently standing in. Um, that's so really I'm interesting. Sl- that's a really interesting analogy. But all i got to say is hurry up. I want to read this. <laughs> thank you and thank you. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm basically still standing in the living room of this house, turning right. lights on and going, and then what? Uh, and I will have to write more in order to find out and then come back and sort of start drawing the map of my house. But that's currently something I'm working on. Um, I have a novelette coming out, I think, next month from Clark's World, which is... Oh God, what is it even about? How do I explain it? Uh, it's called Everyone from Themis Sends Letters Home. And it's got Proxima Centauri. It's got virtual reality. It's got naturalist writing. And... The idea that you can't really change power structures because we're all doomed. That's good to know. You know, just cut to the chase is right, what I right. say. Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So are you done with comics so, for a while? I'm currently working on a creator-owned book, which is just as lighthearted as everything else that we've been talking about. Right. I want to sit on it for right now because I am waiting for outside reasons to discuss it. Let's put it that way. Okay, fair enough. But I am very excited about it, and I am putting together a proposal for a graphic novel that started out being about a theme park, because it was a way to talk about constructed personalities where no one actually had to die, and then it turned into a murder mystery, because apparently I just can't stop myself. I can see that. <laughs> the, the more I read about theme parks, the darker and weirder it gets, which I guess is true for anything. The more you read about it, the darker and weirder it gets. But there is something about the theme park vibe that I think is amazing and creepy and wonderful and creepy. Yeah. But theme parks are like, you know, carnivals. Because I really like that whole carny lit geek love stuff. It's an incredibly regulated version of that, though. So hopefully when, uh, when the next novel is out, even uh, if, it's, if it's about people swallowing walnuts full of worms <laughs> or the Clark's World one, we will speak to you again. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time out today.